Hello, good evening. Um, you are welcome to our Theology Tuesday at City Church here. My name is Femi Oshunui. I'm the pastor of City Church. And I'm so, we're so pleased to have you. Thank you for joining us. It's been three weeks now, and we've been looking at the book of Revelation. Well, this will be the third study on that, and we hope to conclude with that. Now, I want to give a little bit of a few minutes for other people to join on. It usually takes a number of minutes, but I do want to get you prepared because today it's going to be a marathon and um, hopefully the Lord will help us. But let me just see a number of people that are here. Um, uh, if you don't mind, you can just, well, someone has already thrown in uh, questions. Uh, the questions, will we'll, we'll take the questions, obviously, uh, during the Q&A. Um, now, I'm only checking the YouTube. I probably, there may be some people on Facebook. I know we're trying Twitter uh, today, and so hopefully, that is uh, that's good. So um, yeah, we'll just give about two, three minutes for more people to to join, and then we get in. I will tell you that you should please get your Bibles, get your Bibles ready. And I hope we don't just come here for some kind of entertainment. We need to dig into the Word, and so get your Bibles ready. Um, we're going to have scriptures obviously projected on on the screens, but. Um, I may quote one or two scriptures sometimes that are not on the screen. And so we, we, we would really want you to get a Bible. But also it's a time to prepare people, get people uh, that you've invited. Tell them that we are now online. Send them text. Just reach out to them. Tell them that we're online. It's the concluding study. And so that we can all journey uh, into this marvelous book together. Okay, I'm seeing more people join. And we'll probably give it a little bit more, two, uh, two or three minutes more. Yes, please do say hi. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Um, I hope we're all keeping well during this period. It's, it's becoming a little bit more and more uncertain. And um, we do keep praying for all those in authorities, all our healthcare professionals that are putting themselves in harm's way. Um, these people have, have been heroic, to say the least. And uh, we, we will need them even more in the coming days. We need to keep praying for our leaders. Um, it's not easy to take the right decisions um, at this period. And there's so many things, so many variables that they have to consider. The economy, but the safety of people, security, all of these things. It's not easy to be the man or the woman in the, in the arena um, at this time. So uh, please, let's keep, them, let's keep them in prayers. But let's also keep those who are suffering, those who are suffering as well, let's keep, let's keep them in prayers as well people who are struggling and are not able to um, eat the way they normally would because they're not paid the way they normally would uh, be paid. And so it's, it's a time for all of us to, to really be together in these. Uh, if, we, if the times are uncertain, let our commitment to each other, whether from um, a church perspective or a Christian perspective or just the, um, the state, city perspective or the national perspective. Okay. Um, I think I'll give it one more minute. I'll give one more minute uh, from people. Thank you, Demola, joining in from, um, from Ikeja. Uh, Shike, Mabel, Collins. Uh, oh, oh, wow. Uh, from Belgium. That's really good. Nice to see you. And Tironke. Uh, that's great. Oh, Shola Phillips. So nice to see you as well. Um, okay, so we, we are almost down to the minute uh, before we, we begin. 
All right, I think this is a good time for us to start. And so let's get into um, what we have for today. But I think it's good if we, all, we start with a, a word of prayer, isn't it? Uh, let's get into, let's ask God for his help um, in trying to open the scriptures to us. Lord, this is your word. Uh, we believe that you have spoken to us. And we believe, Lord, that as you speak to us, though, we do need you, we need your spirit to illuminate the word that has been given. We thank you that we have guiding principles that ultimately that illuminated word must uh, glorify Jesus. It must show us Jesus and therefore glorify him and that way you would be glorified. And so Lord, we ask, oh God, for wisdom, wisdom to go through this book. But we ask, oh God, for your truth to prevail and that when your truth comes, we pray for encouragement. We pray, O oh God, for building up. We pray, O oh God, for not just head knowledge, but something that will reach our hearts. We pray for the ability, O oh God, to spot error and to, and to uh, push it aside. We need you, O oh God, now more than ever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, welcome uh, once again. So we've been going through the book of Revelation, and I won't be able to do much of a recap as um, I tried to do last week, eventually caused, um, it took us too much time. And today we have so much to go through. But um, what we have said is we tried to look at this book because it's only three, um, um, three times we're doing this study. We've tried to look at this book from three different aerial perspectives. So we're not as detailed as we can be, but we're going three different aerial perspectives. So the first aerial perspective was the highest. That was at the plane level, we said, 35,000 feet. And that, we're looking at what the message of Revelation is in the context of the entire Bible. Or if you like, in the context of the canon of Scripture, of the 66 books of the Scriptures. And we saw that just as all those books are, if one way or the other getting you to Jesus, the book of Revelation is doing that. Last week, a little bit more technical, we looked at it from a helicopter um, um, a view. And that was really looking at the structure of the book of Revelation. And what we saw is that rather than think of the book of Revelation as just containing uh, some letters to some specific churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then a rapture that happened before that is not seen in the book of Revelation, and then a, a series and sequence of events that is meant to be concentrated on the Jews because the church has been raptured and will no longer be there, that eventually lead the seven-year tribulation and the Antichrist rule and the destruction of, of those who come against Jerusalem and then Jesus Christ coming to destroy the, uh, the Jesus Christ destroying them and then setting up a seven-year, a uh, 1,000-year reign before Satan is given one more time to gather terrible forces and Jesus Christ destroy them and then there's the white throne judgment and then the heavenly reign. We said rather than that structure of seeing chapters 4 to 21 going sequentially, rather than that, that the book of Revelation gives us different from after 4 to 5, which shows us the heavenly throne room. It gives us different sections that are cyclical. They are saying the same thing, but it is intensifying. It's intensifying, right, and being repeated. So the same thing is repeated, but it's, it's intensified in tone, and so that it keeps ratcheting up and ratcheting up until you get to the end. But ultimately, it shows us the church in the church age, and then towards the final end of the church. I said I wasn't going to do a recap, but I've, I've just done that. All right, so uh, what we said was that the book 
uh, of Revelation has one message, and we try to say that it is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. The unfolding of God's sovereign plan of, uh, of eternal victory for his church in the victory of the Lamb, despite the fierce opposition from Satan's evil domain. Right? So it's the unfolding of God's sovereign plan for victory for his church in the victory of the Lamb, despite the fierce opposition or the concerted opposition of Satan's evil domain. And so, as I said, we've given a 10, if you like, 10 section breakdown that'll probably be on your screen. Um, and we said, yes, there's an introduction, yes. There's a le there are specific letters to seven churches, but then all the next six um, um, uh, cycles, if you like, keep showing us. Uh, uh, then obviously there's the throne room, but then there are six sections that are cyclical, and they keep showing us the same thing. And, the, um, and, and so what we're going to do this time is look at one of those sections in a bit more detail. And we're doing that because the key section, where we, the, call, the, call the seven signs, uh, from 12.1 to 15.4. It's a key section, and it also brings us into um, examining some of the things that is really on our minds, like who the Antichrist is, what 666 is, 144,000, what are all of these things? And so we hope to try to answer them today in this study. But here's what you realize, that the answer still has to be in the context of the message of Revelation. And we'll see that. Now, we're not going to go through the whole 12, 1 to 15, 4. We call it the seven signs because if you look at it, each of, um, it shows you about seven visions. And each of those seven visions, you can actually find out where they are by looking at, uh, uh, John uses a, a, a phrase that will let you know this is the beginning of a new section. So he's, he may say something like, then I saw a sign, or then I looked, or um, uh, uh, then I, 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 uh, I looked or I just saw something like that. And so you find that in 12 verse 1, in 13 verse 1, in 13 verse 11, in 14 verse 1, in 14 verse 6, 14 verse 14, and then finally in 15 1. 12 1, 13 1. 13, 11, 14, 1, 14, 6, 14, 14, and 15, 1. Now, we're not going to look at the whole section, all those sevens, but we are going to look at the, the span of the area for, for the first four. So the things that cover 12, 1, 13, 1, 13, 11, and 14, 14, 1. So the seven signs come after the seven seals and the seven trumpets, okay? Now, remember I said that... Um, it will be the beginning, 12 is going to be the beginning of a new section. Why? And I can prove that. The last section was 8, from 8, 5 to 11, 18, 19, 11, 18, 19. 19 is a sort of transition verse. 11, 19 is a transition verse into this. But you will notice that the last part of 11, 11 verse 15 and 11 verse 18, for instance, 11 15 tells you about the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. It is following the, the blast of the seventh trumpet. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Or it says, now the time has come 
when the dead will be judged. And if you read the entire Bible, you know that the end comes when Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. If you look at chapter 20, you will see that the dead were judged. And so you see that it's the end of one of those cycles, which brings us into the new one. And so what I want to then do is read Revelation chapter 12, and we'll start with there. What we're going to do is that we're going to, in, this, in the two and a half chapters we're looking at, we'll look at the work of the dragon, the work of the beast, and the victory of the Lamb, okay? But let's start with Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And I'm going to try and read very quickly. As I said, we have quite a lot to do today, and I hope we can cover it too. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour the child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who would rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And to his throne, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Mike, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was held down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was held down to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, ye heaven, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is he's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. And when and went off to wage against the rest of our offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus Christ. Sorry, about Jesus. All right, so we need to start getting into this. Key to this is we need to identify some of the characters. You see, what happens in um, chapters 1 to 11, we see a lot of the tri travails of the people of God. We see a lot of this, the trials of the saints, the persecution of the saints. We, we see it from their perspective. But what we don't find is who is causing this. We see that God is sovereign and Christ is sovereign in chapters 4 and 5. But we don't know whether there's an evil component to be, um, behind the suffering of the saints. Now, from chapters 12 all the way to chapter 20, uh, 21, Sorry, all the way to chapter 20, we then now start to identify personalities, evil personalities, 
behind all of them. And so they start, two, uh, three of them are introduced to us between, chap between chapters 12 and chapters 13. But now we have to first identify who is this woman. This woman in heaven, clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Very, very important. Now, this woman is not Mary, as um, the Catholic Church would try to um, uh, uh, say. But actually, this woman, and please notice what I would say, she's the messianic com community. The messianic community. That is, the community of the promised Messiah that has been promised throughout the Bible. She's the, 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 the community of the, uh, the Messiah. Now, she has different forms as you go through the Bible, but she's still the same person. So the very first time we can identify her is we can look at Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. In Genesis 37, verse 9, Jacob has 11, uh, he has 12 sons, right? Jacob has 12 sons. And one of them is called Joseph, and Joseph dreams a lot. He's a dreamer. That's why if you have a daughter that dreams a lot, we call her Josephine. If you have a son that dreams, they just call Joseph. He dreams a lot, and he was a bit of a spoiled brat. And in this dream he shared with his people, this is what he said. He said, I had a dream, and um, he, told, he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, remember the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? And now they're, they're in temptation. Will your mother, the moon, I, the sun, and your brothers, the stars, actually come and bow down to the ground before you? What do we have here? The promise of God was given to Abraham, and then it was transferred from Abraham to Isaac, and then to Jacob. These are who we call the patriarchs. And then Jacob had 12 sons. So because they had the promise of God, they were seen as the Messianic community. God had promised Abraham that a Messiah would come out of his line. And so the first Messianic community was actually a family. And this family, as we can see here, right, is Jacob, his wife, and his 12 sons. It's 11 stars here, but don't forget the 11 stars are bound to one person. So there's the dreamer and then the 11 stars, which is the 12 sons. And so that you can already see that picture of the moon, the sun, and 12 stars. Now if you fast forward, and this is going to be really important because in the background of all we'll be seeing and the, the symbology that we'll see, you'll see that the book of Revelation is so steeped in the Old Testament. And many times when you're seeing, talking about the church, you're really talking about the new Israel. Paul in Galatians 6 verse 10, uh, 16 says, Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. When he was talking about that, he was writing to the churches in Galatia um, who had been infiltrated by false teachers who are telling them that to be really Christian is for you to now become more Jewish. Paul was trying to say, uh-uh, this is the real Israel of God. The real Israel of God is now the church. And so when we are trying to interpret a lot of what we'll see here, you'll see that there'll be a lot of allusions to Israel. But it's the church now as the fulfillment of Israel. So if you move after the first, the, the, the Messianic um, community being the family of Jacob, later that develops into the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel is built on what? Twelve tribes, the twelve sons of Jacob, twelve stars. 
And this woman is pregnant at this point because she's about to give birth to the Messiah. It gives you echoes of Isaiah chapter 66. Right? So she's about to give birth to the Messiah. At that point, it's Israel when she hasn't given birth to the Messiah. When she does give birth to the Messiah, who is meant to rule with a rod of iron, right, and was caught up to God and to his throne, and we know who that is, the person of Jesus Christ. Once the Messiah has been given birth to, the Messiah no longer is trying to build his community based on 12 sons of Jacob or 12 tribes of Israel. He's building his community based on who? 12 apostles that he chose. And so what happens is this woman is composite over a period of time, but she's always consistently the messianic community. When the, messianic, when the Messiah was promised in the Old Testament, but now the Messiah has come in the New Testament, who are his people? And so at this point, after she has given birth to this male child, it is now the church, that is, the woman. Okay? Now, the next thing we see is that in... Uh, and don't forget, one of the things that you see very, very, um, uh, uh, very important, and you see this in verse 5, it says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who ruled the nations with an iron scepter, and the child was snapped up to God and to his throne. The whole life of Jesus and his earthly ministry is summed up in that verse. Born with a dragon wanting to devour him. Remember that um, the devil was always against Israel, but at, this time, at the particular time, Jesus was going to give him birth to Herod, wanted to kill all the babies, right? And so he, couldn't, he missed him. He missed him at, uh, during all the time in his earthly ministry um, when many people went to kill him, but he said, it's not my time. Now, even though he thought he got him at the cross, look at what happened. He rose from the dead. And so now he's caught up to the throne of God. That is the entire um, life and ministry of Jesus Christ in that verse 5. And we'll come back to that a little bit. But then we have to look at this dragon. In verse 3, he says, there was another son, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Now, once you see that it's a monster, a dragon, quite often in the Bible, in many of the prophets, the depiction of a monster, a monster, most especially a monster coming out of the sea, right? The depiction of that monster is always this force, whether it is of another kingdom, another nation, but this force that is particularly coming against the people of God. And so Egypt, for instance, in Psalm, um, in Psalm 74, verse 13 to 14, Egypt that persecuted them under the slavery and when we're now caught up in the Red Sea is seen as a great sea monster. You can also see Isaiah 51, verse 9, Ezekiel 29, verse 3. That one is not just talking about Egypt, it's talking about Pharaoh, but Pharaoh as he embodies Egypt. And so this dragon has to be a dragon that is against Israel. That's what the background of the Old Testament will say. And so it was against Israel. We've always seen how the devil was tempting Israel and leading Israel astray. But it was then against Israel's Messiah, but couldn't get Israel's Messiah. And so what is the next thing? When he couldn't get Israel's Messiah, look at verse 9. What is he now going to do? Oh, sorry, his name, we can identify him as of old. He's that great dragon that is well, hurled down is none other than that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And when he says that ancient serpent, where I call the devil, what do you think he's trying to point you back to in the Old Testament? Exactly, the Garden of Eden, where he was shown as a serpent. And what did he do in the Garden of Eden? God's first couple, the first community of God, a couple, what did he do? 
He destroyed them by deceiving them. He attacked them by deceiving them. This, this has always been his two great tactics. Deception and persecution. Deception and persecution. He attacked them by he attacked them or persecuted by deceiving them. And sometimes it's either of both. He always wants to destroy God's people and he uses attack or persecution and deception. This dragon is decidedly against the people of God. That is the significance of verse 4 when he says that it throws down, it throws down the stars. It still swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, um, this is, and Revelation, a lot of Revelation is taking and fulfilling and extending lots of prophecies in Daniel. So, for instance, in Daniel 8 verse 10 and verse 24, in Daniel 8 verse 10 and verse 24, there was a picture of an end-time army against the people of God. Against the people of God. Daniel foresaw, uh, foresaw that there will be this ferocious kingdom that will come against the people of God in the end. And listen to what he says. It grew until, that is, this um, ferocious um, um, enemy. It grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. 24. He will cause astounding devastation. He will destroy those who are mighty. Who are the them? Those who are mighty. Who are the heavens? Uh, the, the stars that were thrown to the earth, it tells us, the holy people. And so we understand that those stars that you are seeing thrown down, and don't forget in many ways that in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 1, when the angel that is represented as a star is an angel that is towards the churches. And so it is throwing down, it basically is giving you this picture of the enemy that wants to destroy the church of God by persecution and Deception. That is why when you get down to, let's now go to verse 12 to, seven, 12, 12 to 17, right? 12 to 17, it warns, it warns them. He says, woe to the earth and to the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he, know, he knows his time is short. And so what does that then work out to be? Well, in verse 13 and uh, 17, what does he do? The dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth. He pursued who? The woman who had given birth to the male child. So we know he's pursuing the church. Verse 17, what does he do? Um, um, uh, uh, verse 17, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandment and hold fast to the, their testimony about Jesus. He's filled with rage. He comes against the church. That is his nature. He missed Christ. He couldn't get him. So he comes against the new Israel. And how does he do it? Well, remember I said that he has certain tactics, right? In verse 15, look at what he does. It says, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. Now, I know at this point, it, it seems like I'm interpreting everything. You have to understand that the book of Revelation is written like that. It's not written for you to start thinking of sci-fi kind of movies and things like that. No, it's written particularly because it's apocalyptic language, as we said, it is written in, in symbolic form, but symbolic form that you, if you are steeped in your Old Testament, you'll be able to understand. And so... 
this tactic, when you see this water that is being poured out on her, but you also see this fury at which he's showing. And I said, well, he has two tactics. Okay, we understand the fury, persecution, but will the water represent deception? Well, if you read Psalm 69, verse 14 to 15, and Psalm 144, 7 to 8, you'll see how waters and flood come together, but it is an attack against God's chosen, whether it is God's chosen king, as we see here, or God's chosen people, but it's an attack. Flood is always seen as an attack that the enemy brings, or mighty waters. So let's read that. Psalm, 100, uh, uh, Psalm 69, verse 14, 15, Psalm 144, 7 to 8. Deliver me. That is, this person is asking, he's in trouble. Deliver me from those who hate me. So it's an enemy that is coming against him. And it's David. From the deep waters. Those who hate me are coming against me. And then he metaphorically describes it as deep waters. Verse 15. Do not let the flood waters engulf me. Don't let the flood waters engulf me. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the fans of foreigners. And verse 8 of, uh, 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 let's forget 7, 8 of 144 says, those are full, uh, people whose mouths are full of lies and whose right hands are deceitful. Maybe I should... Uh, probably I should read verse uh, 7 because I think that would even give it more, um, more context. Psalm 144, verse 7. So verse 7 says, Reach down from your hand, uh, reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the mighty waters of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies and right hands are deceitful. In other words, he's saying, I need deliverance from the attack that comes from the waters. From the attack that comes from the waters. Me, your person, your chosen um, um, king, I, the, your, your enemies and my enemies are coming against me. He describes them as waters. But the people who are coming against them, he describes their character as full of lies and whose hands are deceitful. Deceit and persecution. You see, just as he did with the first woman in the garden in Eden and succeeded with his deception and therefore destroyed my um, relationship with God and destroyed her. And then he also did with the second woman. Now, the first woman he did in the garden, the second woman he did in the wilderness. That is, the people of Israel now brought into the wilderness of Sinai as they wanted to journey to, uh, through the, uh, the promised land. The first one was in a garden. The second one was in a wilderness. He also succeeded against that woman. Israel, eventually with all the temptations, they grumbled. None of the people that came out of Egypt made it to the promised land. Just as he did with those, he is going to attempt to do it to this new woman who is now in the wilderness. But he will not succeed. That's what you saw. He will not succeed. Now, why the wilderness? Because in verse 5, it tells us that the woman went into the wilderness, right? That God drove her into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? Now, don't forget that in the wilderness, that's as I said, the first, Israel, the first Israelites went into the wilderness. 
But Jesus himself, the faithful and the fulfillment of all Israel, Jesus himself, the faithful, perfect Israelite, at the dawn of his ministry, where was he led into? Into the wilderness to be tempted. Because the wilderness is at the same time both the place of peril, there are attacks there, as you saw, the enemy is attacking and trying to deceive, but it's also a place of protection. In verse 5, notice what it says, that, um, uh, uh, verse 6, sorry, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. That wilderness where she's prepared by, uh, uh, a place prepared for her by God is the wilderness where she's being attacked. Why well, I thought it was prepared for her by God. And many times as Christians, we say, I am God's own. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. No one can attack me if I just decree, if I declare. That shows that I am with God and God will protect me. Psalm 91, as many people are saying, confess it all the time. That will be your dwelling place and your protection. Here it says that she is being protected by God. As you could see, she is being protected by God from the enemy. And yet, the enemy was attacking her. It's a place of peril. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15 to 16. What it says about the first Israelite's journey in the wilderness. It says, he, God, led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness. He was with them. The Lord is my shepherd and he leads me through, um, uh, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The issue is never whether you are attacked. The issue is whether in your place of attack, you are also in the presence of God. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness with its venomous snakes and scorpions. <laughs> Those are things that attack. Snakes and scorpions. But in the place where, that is, that talks about peril. But in the place where snakes and scorpions were, he also brought you water out of the hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness. Snakes and scorpions. Rot, uh, 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 rock water and heavenly manna. The place of peril and protection. Why? It says there in verse 16, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tested. You see, suffering for Christians, and it is part and parcel, suffering for Christians, you can look at suffering for Christians in three ways. What it does to us, what it means, in three ways. Suffering is a tag, suffering is a target, right? Suffering is a tag, a target, and it is a tool. A tag because we are the people of the crucified Messiah. Remember, it says that he went, he meant, he went to make war against her who gave birth to the Messiah. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. Uh, sorry, is that when I was going? No, the woman that gave birth. Yeah, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. She's identified with the male child. It is because she has the tag of the male child. She's identified with him. She is the one, uh, the, 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 the community of the Messiah. And because he was attacked, we too are being attacked. That's what it says in Matthew 
uh, 5 verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. It's a tag. And because of that tag, we become a target. The enemy now comes to attack because we identified with him. And even though we are, you see, the protection is not against the fact that we attack because, uh, we attack because that is a symbol of our, tag, of our tag in Christ. But it's always protected. Even the people in, uh, when, when God delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, Right After the Exodus 14, where Pharaoh had drowned in the Red Sea, what does it say in Exodus 15 when they are singing a song? Exodus 15 verse 12, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. So she's being attacked. She's being attacked bodily, but she's being protected eternally and spiritually. This is why Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Even though there will be an all-out assault against her. Why? Because she is part of me. We are tags and that makes us a target. The enemy wants to target us to destroy us. He cannot destroy us spiritually, but he, he would have his way many times against us physically or bodily. But we are also it's also, suffering is also a tool. It says here that the same wilderness, right, that she's been attacked, God prepared a place for her, uh, a place prepared for her by God, verse 6, where she might be taken care of. Other translations have it, where she will be nourished. Or verse, or verse, um, verse 13, it says, uh, 14 says the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to a place prepared for her in the wilderness where she'll be taken care of. Now, if you notice, in verse 6, it says for 1,260 days. In verse 14, it says for a time, times, and half a time. 1,260 days is 42 months, which we'll see in chapter 13. 1,260 days, if each day is 30 days, then if each month is 30 days, then 1,206 days is 42 months. But if each of those months is one year, then 42 months is three and a half years. So when it says a time, that's a year. Half a time, that's half a year, one and a half. And then when it says times, that's two years. So a t two, 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 two times, that's two years, plus a time, that's three years, plus half a time, that's three and a half years. So the three and a half years and the 1,260 days of the time in her wilderness experience is the same time, is the time of her nourishment, a time of her testing, a time of being attacked by the enemy that represents the entire church age. That is from the time when the church was born. Remember, the church became, the, uh, the, the Messianic community became the church when he ascended. He ascended to heaven. The Messiah ascended to heaven. When Jesus ascended, he told them to wait in the upper room and he sent the Holy Spirit. That is, the, the, the Holy Spirit's descent was a proof that he was now reigning. That was the birth of the church. And that three and a half, symbolic three and a half years, 1,260 days, represents the time from when the church was given birth to, to when the church is going, uh, when Jesus is going to come back again and um, perfect his church. 
So it's a symbolic period of time, a time of testing. Now, however, so we see that the dragon um, tries, he attacks, he, he gets the church many times because he persecutes and he uses deception, but ultimately he doesn't prevail over the church, never. The church continues to remain. The woman, as you see, even though people may die in the church, but the church always continues. Now, but we see that there's a little bit more detail in chapter 13 on how he does this. So I'm going to read from chapter 13, chapter 13, 1 to 14, 3. Chapter 13, 1 to 14, 3. We'll see that Satan, the devil, uses emissaries. He has some proxies to do his bidding. And that takes me to the work of the beast. So let's go to 13. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like that, those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has hears, let them hear. If anyone is, going into, is, go, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. Now listen, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the, path, on the part of God's people. Verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of, its, of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in order in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship uh, the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and, uh, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has inside calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is six, six, six. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. Then I heard, then the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures 
and elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Mm. Who is the Antichrist? It says in verse 18, I think, that you should count. You should calculate if you have insight. It's giving you 666. And we are identifying that with the Antichrist because, as I'll show you soon, that a lot of the, what we see here is substitutes for Christ. So who is the Antichrist? 666. There have been many ways people have tried to identify the, uh, the Antichrist. Since it says calculate, and a lot of people will go straight to that number. And with that, quite often, most people have used a form um, um, of something that a lot of us learned when we were growing up in school, that is, certain languages, um, the alpha, uh, like, for instance, English uses what we call an alphanumeric um, uh, uh, table. That is, alphabets and, and, and numerals are separated. Right, A, B, C, A to Z, and 1 to Z, uh, 0 to 9, right? They are separate. But in Latin, for instance, the names, the, the letters also have figure, um, 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 uh, value, like numeric value. And it's the same thing with Hebrew. And so, for instance, the very first way people tried to interpret that, they said, oh, this was pointing to the Emperor Nero. Because if you take 666, and kind of put it in Latin, or you find you try and say Nero in Hebrew, and then you break it down, you'll get uh, the letters of his name, you'll get 666. Except that most times you have to make some kind of adjustment. Some say if you don't get it, then use Caesar Nero, Kaiser Nero, then you'll be able to get it, but you have to sub remove something. And there was a little bit of mago mago, as we Nigerians would say, if you have to get there. And if you do the sufficient mago mago, you'll get a lot of people. You can get Napoleon at 666. You could get Hitler 666 with sufficient Mago Mago. I'm almost sure you can get a batch yourself with 666. Because quite often what people see is that they see an embodiment of evil that they've never seen before in their own historic times. And they say, could this be the Antichrist? And so that is why we have to fit the person because we feel we need to support the Antichrist. We need to fit that person in a historical moment and try to fit him into the scriptures to maybe let us know that we are at the end times. Now, I said the geometric model is not consistent. It, it, it doesn't really reap um, the, the fruit that it is trying to, to bring. And besides, if you wanted, if John wanted us to know that it was through geometry, he has a sign that he's given. He does it twice um, uh, here. I think in verse, in verse 9, he's trying to talk about the, the, the uh, chapter 9, he's trying to talk about the ruler of the, um, of the bottomless pit, and he said his name in Hebrew. In Greek, it's Apollyon, but in Hebrew, it's Abaddon. And so then he can give us a Hebrew transli transliteration that enables us, you know, to know, okay, there's a sign there. Or, the, or Armageddon. Armageddon is not um, a Greek word, it's a Hebrew word. So he doesn't give us that sign. And here's the bigger problem. The way we figure this out, there are clues right here. In the text that shows us exactly tools that uh, clues that would just employ the same tools that we have been using all through. So, for instance, hardly does any number in the book of Revelation mean the numeric value. Virtually almost all numbers are symbolic, they are pointing you to something else. 
And that's where we should start looking for that, for the main clue. I don't know if we know the meaning of parody. Parody as opposed to satire. You know, with satire, what happens is that some people are trying to make fun of a particular person, and they do it almost in indirect ways. Uh, they just go, uh, you know, they, 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 they do it in a way that they don't have to imitate the person. They just tell you, you know, they sort of make fun. Now, many times we call parody satire, but parody is slightly different. Parody is a way of imitating someone to be able to pass across a message. Many times, when it's done with comic uh, value, what you see it is in comedy, and people are trying to make fun of a particular person. Maybe they're actually trying to just endear themselves to the person. There's a guy who normally does the uh, uh, parody of our president. I don't think he's doing anything nefarious against the president. But there are people who have wanted to, you know, um, make fun of people, maybe draw cartoons of people, and they exaggerate certain aspects of their features. That is parody because they're trying to send a message. And so imitation, many times, but with exaggerations or with certain things missing, is parody. Do you know what you have, what the whole book of, the whole chapter of Revelation, chapter 13 is? It is a parody. It's a parody of the true Godhead. And there are many clues there. I'll just give you a quick four. Four of them, there are a number, a whole lot more, but four of them as per comparisons, right? Uh, comparison. So, for instance, in, um, we know if you go to um, uh, Revelation 2, verse 27, it says this about Jesus, right? Because it says that the one who would rule them with, uh, with an iron scepter and would dash them to pieces like poetry, that's Jesus. And it says, just as I, sorry, that's not Jesus, that's Jesus promising um, those who overcome um, in one of the churches in, in, in Asia Minor, yeah, that they, they would rule with him and reign with him. He says, just as I have received authority from my father. So Jesus receives authority from his father. What do you see in verse 4 of chapter 13? People worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. The father gave authority to the son. The dragon gave authority to the beast. Here's another one. In 19 verse 12, Revelation 19 and 12, verse 12, he says about Jesus, not only does he, his, his eyes like blazing fire, on his head are many crowns. What do we see about this beast? This beast coming out of the sea, it had ten horns, seven heads, and what? Ten crowns. Do you see it? Let me give you another one. Jesus, we know, as he said in uh, 1 verse 18, 1, chapter, uh, 1 verse 18, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. He's the one who died and became alive. Here, what do we find? That in verse 3, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Seemed to have died, but he's been healed. In fact, by the time they are describing him, later in verse 14, he calls him the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Parody of death and resurrection. The first was parody of the received authority. The second was parody of the crowns. The third was parody of the death and resurrection. And this one, don't forget John, who writes, is the one who wrote the book, the book of Revelation, also wrote the gospel according to John. John in John 16 verse 12 says very simply about Jesus. Jesus is telling his disciples before he leaves that even though I'm leaving you, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 12 of chapter 16, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. It is the job of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to glorify the Son. 
What does the second beast do for the first beast? In 13 verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants do what? Worship the first beast. The second beast brings glory to the first beast. It's a parody. We've seen a lot of the first beast. As I said, look at how the first beast imitates Christ. It's a substitute Christ. And therefore, because he's not fully Christ and a substitute Christ, he's anti-Christ. And then the second beast, they said, the second beast is said to look like, in verse, um, in verse uh, four, uh, 14, sorry, in verse... Um, and it's talking about the second beast. What does it look like? It had two horns in verse 11. It had two horns like what? A lamb. But to show that it wasn't truly a lamb, it spoke like what? The dragon that from where it gets its own source. Do you see? This, as you can see, like Christ, but unlike Christ, and therefore anti-Christ. But what else do you see there? We have a dragon, we have a beast from the sea, and then we have a beast from the earth. The beast from the earth in uh, chapter 16, verse 13, 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 10. In 16, verse 13, 19, verse 20, and 20, verse 10 is also called the false prophet. So we have this beast, uh, uh, we have the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the false prophet. The beast from the sea he said, for 42 months, the beast from the sea, in verse 7, what is he meant to do in verse 7? He is to make war, giving power to wage war against God's holy people, persecution. What is it that the beast of the, of the uh, earth does in verse uh, 14? What does it do? Because of the signs he was giving power to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. While the first beast, because of its, compo uh, its composition, its composition is a, a, a combination of four beasts that we find in Daniel 7, which represented evil empires that will come against God's people. And now this beast is all of them put together. We know that it is not a beast just for that historical moment. It's not just the Roman Empire. It is a beast that works against God's holy people all the time. That's what he said, to wage war against the holy people. And so this beast has manifested itself throughout all generations. Satan giving authority. So when he said in chapter 12 that Satan persecutes, attacks, he uses this beast as a means. So this could be through political state and other kind of institutional kind of power that comes actively to marginalize Christians. And yet the lesson from that beast is not fight against the beast, but it says in verse uh, 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 um, 10, is it 10? Or verse 11, sorry. Verse 9, um, really verse 10. This calls, when you see this beast, this calls for what? The patient endurance and faithfulness of the saints. As a dear friend, uh, a, a wonderful person in our church, he and the wife, and they are from the region of Bono. And one of the things we know, that the most, one of the most uh, difficult uh, people groups in the world to penetrate with the gospel are the Kanuris. They are 99 point something percent uh, Muslim. 
and the whole area around them. What I heard is that if you are living in that region where the Canaries uh, are, are the majority population, you would always be marginalized. Economically, you'd be marginalized. You will never get any of the high positions in state government. Your businesses will not do very well. And what it's saying is that for Christians that are in that place, the beast is against you, but this calls for what? Patient endurance and faithfulness, not for vengeance. Way too many people have asked for vengeance. There were times two, three years ago with a lot of the slaughtering of many Christians. At some point, even some pastors were saying that if any or if you see a headsman come around this church, cut his throat. A particular pastor said that. That how long, how many, how, or how, how long can we, will we continue to allow them to do this to us? This calls for patient endurance and what? Faithfulness. The second beast, though, not just is it a parody of Christ, the second beast, if you notice, he also apes God's people. In Revelation chapter 11, we are told of the two witnesses, but two witnesses is, um, if you like, a prophetic um, symbolism for the church because the church is like Elijah and Moses. The two witnesses, um, they show signs of Elijah and Moses, and it is the church representing God's final prophetic body, and the prophetic message ultimately is the fulfillment of all prophecy, as we see in Revelation 19 verse 10, the testimony of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel. But this same beast, what does he do? This same beast, it says, um, it performed great signs, verse 13 of chapter 13, it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven in full view of the people, great signs, like Moses did great signs, and then fire to come down from heaven like Elijah did. It is like the church, but isn't the church. It is like the body of Christ, but isn't the body of Christ. It represents a false religious system. And so what you have with these beasts coming together, because the first, second beast is helping the first beast, is the sort of religious and false religious allying, um, false religious thinking aligning with state or institutional power against the real church. This is why many times it's really important for the church. I'm not saying that Christians cannot go into politics. Christians should be in politics. But it's really important that the church itself institutionally does not get in bed with partisan politics. Because before you know it, many times the view of the partisan politicians is not also in line with what the kingdom does. Their character, the way they go about things. And then when the church is wholly tied to a particular political party when you get in bed with them, the curses that fall upon them will also fall upon you. And so what we have is this Antichrist, as we see Antichrist in these two beasts. But I want you to see something else, because this is the key to the 666. It is three of them, right? The dragon, the, be the, the beast, and the false prophet, working together in unity for a desired purpose. Hmm. Hmm. Where else have you seen that? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit working together in full unity for a particular purpose. Not only is it parodying Christ and the church, this working together is parodying the Trinity itself. Which is why, don't forget, in the book of Revelation, the number seven always signifies completion. 
right? The sixth seal, the sixth uh, trumpet, and the sixth and the sixth bowl. Whenever you see the judgment, it was yes, it was judgment upon the people uh, upon people of the world. Yes, but the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl was judgment that came that led to the eternal kingdom of God. It was the completion of God's judgment that led to the fulfillment of his purposes. In other words, six is incomplete, while seven is complete. Six, six, six. Whenever you have the three, the, the trinity, if you like, can be seven, seven, seven. Seven, the number of completion, but because it is three, it is the complete, the complete, uh, the Perfection of perfection. It is the completeness of completeness. But when you have six, 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 what you have is the perfection of imperfection. It is the completeness of incompleteness. That is the mark of the beast. That is the, the sign, sorry, the, the, the number of the Antichrist. It is not for us to mathematically try to calculate it. And then match it with a particular person, individual. It is for us to, according to what the Bible shows us, spiritually discern, morally discern, who is this? It is the systemic working of the evil domain and the evil powers to bring about something that looks like the plan and purpose of God, but is decidedly against it. And so what does that call for? Wisdom. Wisdom that you will not be deceived. Wisdom that you are not going to be taken away. Wisdom to do what is right in the time of the beast. And don't forget the beast is working in the 42 months, the same for two months that the woman is in the wilderness protected by God. But it is obvious the beast is working because the woman is being attacked. Persecution and deception. Beast and the false prophet are at work. But this calls for wisdom. You see, you have to understand that the whole thing about this thing, and therefore, if you see this is the beast, what then will be the mark of the beast? Please, don't be deceived or don't be fooled to think that the mark of the beast, therefore, has to be some kind of insertion of something into our bodies. No, this thing is symbolic. If the number is symbolic, if the beasts are symbolic, why don't you think the mark will be symbolic? It calls it in verse 17 there. It says, it is, it is a mark that is received, right, in 16. It forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark, notice, on the right hands and where on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell, unless they did what? They had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. But what was the, this second beast? What was his ultimate purpose? What was his ultimate, the thing that he was meant to do? He was meant to bring glory to the first beast, verse 15, the second beast was giving power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He wants to bring worship to the first beast. The mark is about identification. If you have the mark of the beast, that is, you identify with the beast, you worship the beast. Somebody will say, eh, but the beast is going to stop me from 
buying something or whatever, it's because I want that thing. That's why I decided to worship. Fine, even if you say you're not worshipping the bees directly, here's who you are worshipping. You are worshipping the money that the bees can give you. It's still beastly. The mark of the beast receiving it on your forehead is not a tattoo. It's not 666 because 666 is the number of the beast. It's not the mark of the beast. But the mark of the beast is a form of identification with the beast that shows that is lived out by the worship of the beast and therefore Satan. By worshipping a worldly system, by worshipping the, 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 the... Satan understands this. That all human beings are made for worship. That is true. That is something that is true. But the purpose of all human beings is to worship the right God. But Satan says, I will give you a mark. I will make you worship. Oh, you say, oh, that's all true. But it's just going to be this image. What are you looking for? Are you not looking for signs? I can't bring signs. But it's always wrong. Now I say, he gives you a mark. But it's a fake mark. That would presume that... I said, and identifying with him, it's identifying with his name, as he says in uh, verse 17, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast. So the mark of the beast is identifying with the name of the beast. Therefore, it is about worshipping the beast. Do you understand that? The mark of the beast is identifying with the name of the beast. So your, it's your identification with the beast and with the beast's nature, the name of it. And therefore, it is your worship or your devotion to the beast. And to the beastly system. And to the things that Satan offers. And I said, it's, everything's about a parody of what God gives. That would mean that God is giving a mark to. A mark on the forehead. Maybe. Is it? Is it? Is 666 a part of 777? Is it? Open to chapter 14. This is why I said that we are making a mistake if we start trying to calculate 666 because it is contrasting immediately. What is doing there is contrasting immediately with what is coming in chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me, now was a different, a group, different group of people. Now with the lamb, not with the beast. Standing on Mount Zion. On Mount Zion. We are called unto Mount Zion. The, 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 the city of the living God. Who were with him? 144,000. What is the 144,000? 144,000 is 144,000. 1,000 represents covenant for, 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 for endless generations. Right? 144 is 12 times 12. What does that remind you of? The Messiah community. 12, right? 12 uh, 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 tribes and 12 12 apostles. The Messianic community both under the Old and New Testament. Or another way of putting it is the new Israel, the true Israel. Because if you go to Revelation chapter uh, 7, uh, Revelation, is it 9? No, 7. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4, um, oh, where is this now? I can't find my reference. Yeah, Revelation 7, 4 to 8. Right? You see, John saw, he saw a multitude of people, 12,000 from 12 tribes. What does that give you? 844,000. He calls them here the redeemed. Verse 5 of chapter 14. Who are they? They are the people of God for all generations. How does he describe them? Who had his name. And his father's the name of Christ. The Lamb's name. And the father's name where? <laughs> Written on their foreheads. Written on their foreheads. Now, remember I said, the name is to identify with him. The name is to identify with him. 
But we identify with him how? By worshipping him. The beast, you identify with the beast by worshipping the beast. And we saw that. How do we now identify? We go look at verse 2. And I heard a sound of, from heaven like the roar of rushing waters with, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpies playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and, and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Worship to the true God. In other words, receiving the mark of the beast is the totality of worship in the in, to the incomplete God. Receiving the mark of God is totality of worship to the complete God. Nebuchadnezzar in, Genesis, in, in Daniel chapter 4 saw that he had built this whole Babylon and he gave, he felt adoration should come to himself. In verse 30 he said, is this not this great Babylon I have built as the royal, royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty that is putting worship and do where it should not be. And because of that, judgment came on Nebuchadnezzar. What was the judgment? The judgment was basically an outliving of the kind of heart that utters that statement. The kind of heart that utters that statement is no longer truly human. He is like a beast. And so what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Listen, friends. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 is quite clear. That when you become a Christian, you get the seal and the mark of God. The seal and the mark of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 to 14. And that seal is to mark you out as God's own. And if you have that seal, he is guaranteeing that when he returns for you on the day of redemption, you will be his. Look at it. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You were included with Christ. That is, you, were, you took on his name. When you believed, listen, you were marked. You were marked with, in him with a seal. What is it? The promised Holy Spirit. What is the seal of God? That which he says, you are my own. And he gave you his spirit. That is the mark of God. And with that mark, you will avoid the mark of the beast. Many people and many Christians are trying to avoid the mark of the beast and thinking that our message is avoid the mark of the beast. Here is how you avoid the mark of the beast. You receive the mark of God. And that is by receiving the Holy Spirit. But how do you do that? You believe in the gospel of your salvation. He said that Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise and glory of his name. You see what he's saying? That redemption of God's possession, the, the day when we receive our inheritance is when Christ returns. 
Before Christ returns, we're in this wilderness. We receive that mark. We receive the Holy Spirit. He helps us. He disciples us as we are in the wilderness, nourishing us as we go through suffering, reminding us that we are Christ, reminding us, as it says in 13 verse 8, that our names are in the Lamb's book of life. That is who we are. If you have the mark of God, you can never receive the mark of the beast. Guaranteed. That should be an assurance for all of us Christians. Let us not start dabbling into things that we do not know of. People talking about deep things. Deep things. Quite often, in my experience, deep things are just often deep studies into things that are shallow. We should be assured by the gospel. That is how we don't receive the mark of the Antichrist. Now, I do want to quickly answer a question. It's a bit of an aside. Who is the Antichrist? Because some people say, okay, so is it a system? It looks like it's a system here, that what you are saying. Or is it a person? Now, in Revelation 13, it does look like it's a system that consists of persecution and deception motivated by Satan and his demonic forces. That is what it is. But some would say, okay, so are you then saying it's not a person? Now, what I would say is that, first of all, if you are trying to understand who the Antichrist is, Revelation 13 is not the best place. If you are trying to say, is it a person? Because Revelation 13 tells you what he's trying to teach you about the Antichrist. He's a, he's a party of Christ. But it's a party of Christ, a systemic party of Christ that has always worked through the, the, um, uh, 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 the church age. And he's trying to teach you about patient endurance, faithfulness, and wisdom. Now, however, John also writes some other books. He wrote 1 John, 2 John. And John is the only one that uses the word antichrist. He doesn't even use the antichrist here. He just demonstrates it for us. He used the word antichrist about four or five times in the books of 1 John and 2 John. And now you see the quotations is 1 John 2, 18, uh, 22, 4, 1 to 3, and then 2 John 7. 1 John uh, 2, 18, 22, and then 4, 1 to 3. But in those, when he's talking about the antichrist, it's funny, he talks about that there are many antichrists. The Antichrist is coming, but now that there are many Antichrists, plural. Now, in his time, he said there are many Antichrists. He says such a person that does, that teaches or believes certain things, such a person is the Antichrist. So it seems plural. And then in 4, 1 to 3, he identifies false prophets or false teachers as Antichrist. Or having this, he says you should discern the spirit of the Antichrist. In the many deceivers that have gone out. So whilst we are looking for that one person, we find out that John, who writes the book of Revelation, tells you that there are many antichrists. There's the spirit of the antichrist. That spirit of the antichrist will be consistent with what we see in the book of Revelation. Therefore, it can come in many different people. It can manifest itself in, uh, in teachers who deceive. But in 2 Thessalonians, Paul writing about, the anti about this same subject, he talks about the man of lawlessness. He said, don't allow anyone to deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until rebellion, the rebellion occurs, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul seems to talk about an embodiment of lawlessness, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This is another reason why you shouldn't care. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be worried. He is doomed to destruction. Jesus will destroy him by his coming. Now, but he says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. The dragon is the one that is motivating it. And he says he will use all sorts of display of power through signs and wonders. Do you see? Like the second beast. 
and all the ways of uh, and all the ways that wicked um, uh, that wickedness deceives um, sorry and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Hmm. So you see how we identify this antichrist rather than look at again that's why I said that that structure of thinking of the book of Revelation doesn't make sense when we are trying to do mathematical calculations of this year something happened this year it triggers this and then we are saying ah that guy that's going to make a peace treaty between Israel and Palestine and then all, all the Gulf nations no 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 stop going into complicated things deep studies into shallow things Here's what we can say about the Antichrist. Because here in 2 Thessalonians, it does seem, I can't fully categorically say, it does seem that, as you take 1 John with it, that 1 John is saying, no, the manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist comes through false prophets, false teaching, and then um, state action, and that we see in Revelation, state action or institutional action against the church, whether through man, uh, marginalization or through... Um, economic marginalization, social ostracization, or just direct, like, killing people. You see the systemic view of it, institutional view of it in the book of Revelation. You see that it has a spirit that is, is going through that, that can also come through false teaching within the church. So one is outside of the church, the other one is within the church. And yet, the, um, uh, 2 Thessalonians seems to see that because he says he will be destroyed at the coming of Christ. It seems to say that there may be an embodiment of this total evil in the same way that the Christ, that the Son, God the Son, incarnated and became the embodiment God in human flesh. It does seem that you may have a similar incarnation, similar incarnation, another parody of evil in a human being. At the end of the age, at the end of the end of the church age, it does seem like that. But again, if you are scared of him, you are missing the point. If you, where, where is he? Well, where will I get, not get his mark? How does Paul end? How does Paul end in 2 Thessalonians 2? After he has told you he will be destroyed when Jesus Christ comes, when he says those who will, who will follow him and will be deceived, what does he say about them? He says... He would, the, that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. But who are those who are perishing? They perish because, not because they couldn't spot him. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Can you see it? The Antichrist, let me define for you. The Antichrist is a demonic working of Satan that has worked against and in the church throughout its existence through individuals or institutions to both cause to cause both oppression and deception. However, it seems that in the final times, the Antichrist will be revealed and incarnated in an individual who would wreak more havoc against the church, but will eventually be destroyed by Christ at his coming. But what is interesting, that in the book of Revelation, in two John, 1 and 2 John, and also here in 2 Thessalonians, you are never counseled to try to spot exactly who the Antichrist is. Never. What you have been counseled to do is to focus on the gospel and believe and therefore be saved. Can I appeal to those who are too much into conspiracy theories? Could you also be part of the problem? 
that in trying to run around and trying to bring all these teachings and trying to pull people to this new found thing that you are saying and everybody keeps missing it, that you are also doing the bidding of the Antichrist because you are directing people's eyes away from Christ and therefore to be saved. That you are more passionate about these your theories. You are more passionate about how this aligns and maybe Donald Trump is the one that can save us. I saw that with somebody who said that the only person that can save us now is Donald Trump. With all this 5G, COVID-19, and all of those things. Can it be that as you are moving people and you are more passionate about those things, you are doing the exact bidding of the one who you are trying to spot? Stop the conspiracy theories. Because they are part of the deception. I must finish with this. We said the Antichrist is going to be defeated. He will be defeated. He will be defeated. Listen to me. He will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. If the Antichrist is defeated, it's because Satan has been defeated. But how was Satan defeated? Go back to Revelation chapter 12. And that's where we end. How was Satan defeated? That is, despite all his acting against the church, how can we be sure that he will be defeated? Well, there are two things that Revelation 12 shows us. We didn't go into verse 7 to 11. And now let us go there. 12, 7, 11. Notice what it says. There was war. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon against angels fought back. Some people have identified Michael. A lot of people, well, the Jehovah's Witness will identify Michael as Jesus Christ. No, he's not. And some Christians say that. No, he's not. Again, don't forget, this thing is steeped in Old Testament language. And so, <coughs> in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it anticipates at the end, and that end represents the last days. The last days are when the church is born and Jesus Christ has ascended. So it anticipates at the end, that there will be an end-time enemy against God's people. But who is going to fight? At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time, that, there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until the end. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, the land book of life, will be delivered. So Michael was seen as a protector of the Israelites. It was Michael that fought against the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, the demonic forces. So he's the one protecting the people of God. Now, at this end time, this end time, that Michael is now also fighting the, for the people of God, the Lamb's people, the Messianic community, in the heavenly sphere, if you like, just showing the cosmic nature of it. And so when Satan had authority to accuse God's people, when he had time to do as he liked, like in the old covenant time before Jesus Christ came and defeated him, it was as though he was in heaven. But when Michael symbolically fought against him and the, Satan's uh, 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 minions, Michael's angels, what happened? He was hurled to the ground. He was defeated. In other words, it is showing us from a heavenly perspective the defeat of Satan. From a heavenly perspective, if you like, a spiritual perspective, the defeat of Satan. He has been defeated. Jesus Christ said, I saw Satan fall down as I like. Or, now is the time for judgment. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out because there was another prince that stood. Michael fights, symbolically. It's not talking about a time when Satan was brought down before creation started. No, there was a fall of the angels before the creation started. There was a fall of the angels before the creation, the first creation happened, before Adam and Eve. There was. We see that in the book of Jude, I think 6 or something. Right? We see that in um, 2 Peter as well. There was a fall before the first creation. But in similar ways, before the new creation, there was another fall. 
of Satan. But this was his total defeat from a symbolic heavenly standpoint. But the symbolic heavenly standpoint defeat of Satan happened because something else happened on earth, which is the basis upon which Michael was victorious. Because our victory is not by an angel. How is the church victorious? How has Satan totally lost his way? How is it that we saw in verses 3 and 4 that he could not catch this Christ? He tried to get him, but he couldn't catch him. It wasn't fully told to us in, the, in verse 5. That he just said, oh, he was, he was born, and then he was caught up to God in his throne. There was a way he was defeated. And it's a verse we all know so preciously. And so let's go there. Revelation 12, verse 11. Well, let's start with 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. This is when Jesus ascended after his resurrection. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accused them before God day and night has been held down. He's now been held down to earth. But something happened. How would these people triumph? They triumphed over him how? By the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. It's not about pleading the blood of Jesus Christ over you know, places that covering the blood of the uh, of Jesus to cover your investments or your home. And no, it is talking about the death of Jesus Christ. For if they had known, they will not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was there he defeated Satan once and for all. It was there the beast got his fatal wound at the cross of Christ. When they thought they had got him, they, that was the death of them. When they thought they had gotten him in death, it was the death of death itself. And it is on account of that, that his own people who continue to bear his testimony, the testimony about Jesus Christ, the word of their testimony, and also because they do not love their lives unto death, they are not going to exchange their life, they're not going to exchange the preservation of their life against the assault and the persecution of Satan because they will never deny Christ. Why? Because they do not fear the one who can destroy the body. They fear the one who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. And that one is not going to condemn them. For therefore there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. Why? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. In this very uncertain time, we don't know whether it is the time Jesus Christ is coming. It could be. Why should you have certainty? Because of the blood of the Lamb. In this time where there is so much upheaval, we are not sure what is going to happen to our finances. We are not sure what kind of society we are going to have post-COVID-19. How can you have any certainty that you are an overcomer? The blood of the Lamb. In this time when there's so much disinformation and misinformation about the mark of the beast, about what 5G is doing, about what political, what political leader, about what they're doing in, in, in Vatican, about what uh, uh, they're doing in the EU, and all the nonsense that is going as the enemy is bringing out this flood. How is it that the earth is swallowing up to protect the church? How can you be pro protected? By the blood of the Lamb. You are already victorious. Because Jesus is victorious. Our victory, our spiritual and eternal victory, is in the victory of the Lamb. We will not receive the mark of the beast if we turn to Christ. Because then we are sealed. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit guaranteeing 
our, the, the possession, uh, the, uh, with the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption guaranteeing the possession of our inheritance. See, at the end of the day, if somebody asks you, what is the book of Revelation about? You will tell them it is God's victorious plan. It is Christ's victorious work. It is the church's victorious journey. And it is Satan's certain defeat. At the end of the day, what is the, book of, the summary of the book of Revelation? Two words. God win. And I hope you get his alert. It's in Jesus. I hope you believe in him. Let us pray.